Experiencing failure, loss or a bad breakup, for example, almost automatically provokes a search for comfort. It's quite a normal and familiar feeling. You fall, hurt your knee, you look for your mom or your dad to kiss it better. It's a pattern that we know and use quite naturally and quite often. But sometimes we find comfort in a completely different way. We get hit, we're in pain, but we actually don't look for relief. We don't even put a plaster on it. We just don't want to stop hurting. I know it sounds a bit weird or provocative, but I'm certain most of us can actually relate to that. I certainly can. I can remember on top of my head at least three times in my life when I had this feeling. I have been on the wrong side of a breakup a few years ago, and until I could actually understand what happened, until I could really make sense of it several months later, I was holding on to the pain like it was the last tenuous thread that still linked me to that person I had just lost. I'm going to use a formulation that in many ways I don't really like, mostly because of John Mellencamp. It kind of hurts good. And I know if someone had told me this when I was actually in great pain, I would have been very angry and upset, but it took me a long time to realize it. I think I simply didn't want to feel better. You even reach a point when it's more about loyalty than anything else. If you don't hurt, that means you didn't love or didn't love enough. Somehow, the more you hurt, the more important the relationship was. You're constantly proving it to yourself, but also to everyone around you. So here it is. It sounds strange, but the simple fact of being in pain is somehow, sometimes, a form of relief, a reassurance. It's the next best thing, what is left when there's nothing left. Most of the time, one day, the pain fades away and eventually stops. But unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. This episode of The Breaking Point is different. Felicity is 35, she lives in Glasgow and she had to deal with heartbreak and pain in a way that not many of us have. It took her some time to accept to tell me her story and I'm very grateful she finally did. It takes a lot of courage to go through what happened to her and Mick 10 years ago now. I started university 10 years ago in St Andrews. Um, I came from quite a a small village, small school, local community. Um, I went off to St Andrews at the other end of the country. I was probably quite naive, probably led a relatively sheltered life. Um, So I was quite excited, quite nervous, quite anxious, but looking forward to starting university and whatever that brought with it. I probably went, went through school studying Um, doing whatever you do at school. never had a serious relationship. I think I was probably just relatively normal, kind of just went along with things. Not particularly sidetracked by relationships or boys, but I probably didn't spend too much time thinking about anything. I think I just got on with things, enjoyed them as they kind of came along. Um, Never met anyone that was, in looking in hindsight, particularly bothered about schoolgirl type stuff. So I was taken to university by my mother and my grandmother and for them it was you know quite a, a big trip of depositing their first daughter at university. Um, yeah so in the first few weeks probably the friends that I made knew other people from private schools in Edinburgh and so we ended up meeting them and Mick was one of them.
I was probably quite naive. I don't, I don't really remember meeting Mick or particularly anyone else for the first time. But I think that was just because I'm that type of person that doesn't, didn't really notice. At some point during the exam period, we'd been out and on the way home, Mick told me that he liked me. And I was surprised and didn't see it coming at all. I liked it when he told me he liked me. So I didn't immediately know that I really liked him. I think I had an exam the next day, so I was sort of concentrating on that. And I think he'd been thinking about it for a few months, so it had been bubbling away at him and he's had a few drinks and plucked up the courage to, to say that he liked me. Without realising it, I think we grew to be quite good friends and quite close and um, fairly early on you could tell it was going to be something serious and it, it just felt right. It's great, I'm, I look back and I remember being happy, really liking this guy. Again, not worrying too much, probably should have worried more but I never really worried what was going to happen. Mick was definitely the dominant uh, one in the relationship. He was very strong, he was hugely loyal and committed to his friends, but he was also very, very stubborn. Um, he was very hard to argue with, he was very good at arguing. You could tell he was a very clever, witty, nice guy. He had recently experienced his own father's death the year before, so I think he was burdened by that grief. Um, he'd recently, the year before, started university and then left uh, because of an operation. So he had his his issues to deal with and I think that probably made him probably more sensitive and aware of the world than I probably was at being a naive 18 year old who had led a relatively sheltered life up to that point. As months and time passed, time just felt right that we should move in together. So it was a kind of quite a slow, slow progress, but I think it was probably a little bit strange at first, only having the two of us to, to do everything and to, and to think about, not having to worry about the others quite as much. I think because I was, I was very young when we first got together, I think that was part of my growing up. Like, I think I probably would have changed anyway, but he's, he's definitely made me into the grown-up that I am now. I don't remember feeling that I couldn't do what I wanted or or I was restricted or anything like that. So I think we were, we were just fortunate that we, that we grew in the right direction at the same rate. Because I'm sure we both probably changed a lot over that time. I think we were probably just very fortunate that it worked and I don't really know how or why, but it, but it did. We must have been living together for about six or seven months on our own. It was all going quite well and that's where it all started to go wrong when the tumour that Mick had in his neck um, started to reappear. Before I'd started university, he'd had an operation to reduce the size of the tumour on his spinal cord. Ten years or so later, uh, the tumour had obviously started to grow and was starting to put pressure on his spinal cord and starting to cause problems. I was not aware of it. I never really gave it much thought that it might come back one day and I think I'm very glad that I met him after his initial operation and experience because I think it meant I could um, 
I was a bit of a fresh start and didn't need to dwell on the past. I kind of wonder if deep down he was aware that it might come back one day. There were signs that something wasn't quite right. We didn't really know exactly what the what the story was. Um, so obviously the first thing to do is to, to find out. So he was undergoing tests and scans, but it all happened very quickly. And within the space of a couple of weeks really, um, he was in hospital in intensive care. Um, we were looking to see whether operations could be performed uh, what the options were and it was all a very turbulent time where none of us really knew what was happening or what was going to happen um, but it all moved very quickly. Sitting on the bed when he'd come back from the scan and that was obviously the moment that we knew that something was happening. I think it was it was devastation of the probably devastation knowing that it had come back and in that second our world had just changed quite dramatically um, but at the same time I think we just very much focused on what we needed to do to to try and make it better and to do what we needed to do to make any treatment worthwhile or look at the options that might be available and as I would imagine, many people cling on to any idea of hope whatsoever. Uh, we did as well. It was rapidly deteriorating more than they, they ever thought. At that point, we were told there was an operation wasn't possible. So then it, was, it took life-saving action to even buy a little bit of time. And the course of action that was decided on was radiotherapy. Um, and it was very touch and go for a while whether it would even be possible because he was so sick. He had a couple of emergency procedures to allow him to carry on breathing. I and some of his family were at the hospital day in, day out to see what we could do. I liked the fact that he was probably a bit bored because it probably meant he was starting to feel a bit better because before I didn't really notice. Um, so slowly things looked like they were improving and we didn't really know what the outcome was going to be until subsequent scans, but it was all positive and, and moving in the right direction and they were, they were doing something. Whereas the couple of weeks before, there was the potential that there was nothing they could do. So I think, I think that was probably very encouraging, whilst terribly worrying. It was a positive action and we were really pleased about that. That was the only point that we sort of spoke about that we probably wish we'd got married previously. Just that we thought we'd we'd have all the time in the world to naturally progress through different stages, as many people do, without really giving too much thought to the possibility that that might not be the case. So I think at that point, we obviously realised that a future wasn't quite as certain as we'd naively assumed it would be before. I was very, very scared and worried 
all the time even though things were moving in the right direction and, and looking up a little bit I think we'd gone from such depths of despair of spending the night in intensive care wondering if he'd ever speak again that after that everything seems a little bit better but that's not to say that my world or our world didn't stop and you start to notice everybody else who's just doing their normal day-to-day things and you definitely you resent them for it seeing people go to work or go to the shops and you kind of wonder how can they do that you know when we're going through such an awful awful time and obviously awful things happen to a lot of people so that's quite selfish but it felt it just felt very unfair his family had been through so much already so there was definitely a resentment against the rest of the world that everyone else's lives were carrying on as normal when ours had sort of stopped after the course of the radiotherapy um, it was definitely starting to get a bit stronger he'd spent so much time in bed though he'd lost the ability to walk Um, so after the course of radiotherapy had finished he um, was sent on to a rehabilitation centre for another six weeks where they did a lot of physiotherapy and, and sort of taught him to walk again After his six weeks of rehabilitation, um, he managed to walk again um, in a in a wheelchair. But you know, he was he was walking, which was fantastic. Uh, we moved to the little village where his his brother lived, so that was a that was a really happy day. And I remember, I just remember really appreciating the fact he was back home, um, and we were at home together, and he wasn't in hospital. And, you know, the bigger things didn't really matter, like work and where he lived. It just really made you appreciate that he was out at home. So things started to just slowly ease back into normality. And then in the October, he had his appointment for the review scan um, so there was obviously a lot of pressure on what that was going to show and it was all the whether the radiotherapy had been successful or not um, and he came back from that with really really positive results and that was another great day um, the doctors were really pleased um, as far as they could tell it was I don't think they probably ever said the word cure but it, at that moment it was almost a cure and we were obviously ecstatic. It certainly took me a while to get used to the idea that things had now taken a completely opposite turn uh, for the better, because I think it would probably really weigh on him and 
you know, dealing with, you know, an imminent death effectively to suddenly have it changed. I think it was probably quite a hard thing to for him to get his head around, but he, you know, did slowly. So we enjoyed a good few months. Um, we went back to St Andrews for a weekend and got engaged. So again, being quite naive and oblivious to things, hadn't occurred to me that that was going to happen. So we went to St Andrews for the weekend and I think, we'd, I think we 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 went for a walk on the beach, which in hindsight he said I should have thought was suspicious given that he would never have suggested going for a walk on the beach, usually. I um, went for the walk on the beach and he had a ring in his pocket, uh, which I was very touched that he'd managed to buy without me really knowing. And, and I really had no idea at all, given the sort of limitations of him not being 100% mobile and I was obviously very very happy. Our families and friends were all very happy for us. We went back home and started to enjoy planning a wedding which mostly probably due to sort of finances um, and what needs kind of things to settle down a bit we'd probably planned for a year away which was all fine until we went to further review appointments and a nurse had suggested that maybe waiting for a year or so maybe wasn't a good idea. scans had apparently shown that parts of the tumour had fallen off into the spinal cord before the radiotherapy had been given and therefore effectively some of the bits of the tumour hadn't been caught and they were starting to implant again. Um, so a few months later he was back in hospital. They gave him another round of radiotherapy um, in the back of our minds, we've been told that there's only so much radiotherapy a person can have. Um, so we were definitely aware that there was still a, a huge worry. Um, but at this point, I think we knew that not to waste any time. So we planned a wedding for um, six weeks later. All we had to do was book a hotel and, and that was it, really. And I think we we focused on the things that were important. And it was it was fantastic. We got married in the university chapel with everyone that we could have hoped to have been there. The proudest moment or the best moment was Mick walking down the aisle, which six months previously was never going to happen. I really just loved every second of it. And then very, very slowly, uh, signs were starting to reappear again. He was starting to kind of feel a sort of nagging pain in his, his legs. And I think that by, by that point, he'd probably started to recognize those signs much more clearly than he had um, when it had first started. And this was this was now September. So we'd had a, had a few months and it had sort of progressed slowly. 
and it came around to this appointment where I think he almost said that there was probably no point even going because he sort of knew what the outcome was going to be. And that was probably the worst moment because that appointment confirmed what we'd feared. That the tumour had grown again and there was nothing they could do. So that was probably the one of the worst moments of the sort of entire journey. I think that was probably the most desperate time because there was nothing we could do. I remember Mick, you know, effectively thanking the consultants and the doctors when they've just delivered this sort of terminal news to him. But all he could sort of say was, thank you, when we left and came home. I was scared of what was going to happen. I was certainly scared of how the how it would end. I didn't know if I'd be able to... I didn't know what to expect. I've never experienced that before. Because I wasn't sure how that would going to be. I obviously wanted him to not be in pain and not be suffering and not worry. But again, I think I was not wanting it to end, so I was focusing on what was happening at those moments and not worrying too much about what was going to happen after because I wanted that bit to last for as long as it's possibly good. And if I could have had another hour or day or two days, I would have taken that. So after 10 days of being in hospice, um, it, the moments of consciousness were getting less and less. And at times it was very coherent and, and talkative and then those sort of moments became probably less and less and started to become more unconscious more of the time. Um, and then on the 10th day, I think he'd, it was early afternoon and you could tell his breathing was starting to change. So I, along with all of his brothers and his sister, um, was sitting around his bed holding his hand and he passed away very calmly with no panic or observed pain he seemed to be quite comfortable so I think we were all very grateful for that Experiencing this has, most of all, I think it shows you what's important 
and it it demonstrates how it's important to focus on the things that matter um, and I think a lot of people probably learn that but I think I probably learned that earlier on than some people it's showing that that I've got strength to deal with anything that comes along which I think most people probably do as well but you don't know until you're faced with whatever it is whilst I obviously wish that we'd had a longer together even a month or six months or a year or two years I'm so grateful for the time that we did have I wouldn't be the same person without it Would you rather be a different person and not having had that? Not for a second because I was so lucky to have it in the first place I think I've definitely been hardened by the experience I do struggle with other people's stories of, of troubles when ultimately they're not as severe as they could be or and I struggle with people not appreciating what they've got I find it quite hard to be sympathetic when you hear of an older person passing away which is it's definitely hardened me probably quite selfishly I'm probably quite relieved to hear of an elderly person's not suffering anymore I think I probably have to harden a little bit are you are you happy to be hardened I think so because otherwise well I suppose I wish the experience hadn't happened to the point which has causing caused me to be hardened I was probably naturally slightly hardened anyway less emotional um, but this has probably certainly contributed to it and it's probably just a coping mechanism um, to deal with certain things probably wouldn't have the strength to be caught up in the more emotional side of some things if it was exhausting and so it's now been it's now been 10 years um, and there's definitely been a change in the in the 10 years time does heal very slowly but it does going from being initially devastated every every second of the day to every minute and every hour and slowly as time passes you move forward and you get forced to move forward which has now allowed me to experience new relationships and and ultimately have a future. But I was happy with not having a relationship. I wasn't self-pitying, but I, was just, I just wasn't interested. I've never felt any disloyalty. This is what Mick would have wanted me to be happy. He probably would have wanted me to move on sooner, but I was quite happy not to. Um, just before we left home, he'd said to me, you know, would I be okay? And I said I would. And I knew I would be, in some form. I knew, even at that point, that whatever happened, I'd be okay. And I have been. I've always been okay. I've been lonely and upset. I've missed him. But I've always been okay. Ten years on. Don't quite know how I got to 10 years, but I'm okay.
So I think because I spent several years on my own, not looking for anything else, I think that gave me the time to maybe experience being on my own and learning who I was again. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I didn't meet anyone immediately. And then just very, very slowly, I'm very glad I had that time on my own. In a way, to experience the sadness and, as, and pain as a greater impact as it possibly could be. I wouldn't have wanted that pain to be lessened by meeting somebody else quicker. I'm glad that pain was as painful as it possibly could have been. I wouldn't have wanted that pain to be alleviated in any way. So slowly, I've become more aware in what the future could hold. And I'm very fortunate that I've met somebody else. Yeah, I think enough time has passed that I can happily say that I can move on. But it wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't a, a clear line drawn at any point. It was a very natural, slow progression from not being interested in having any relationships at all and to just wanting to experience the pain of Mick not being there to slowly getting some comfort and enjoyment from other relationships. Those changes are almost not noticeable because it's been so slow and then just very naturally and slowly time heals a little bit and enough time passes and I don't think I've ever forgotten anything. I'm still probably very grateful for Mick probably teaching me to be able to feel certain emotions. I think my current partner is probably definitely impacted by my previous relationship. But I think he probably respects that it was a different part of my life and certain things happen that you can't change. I think it probably takes a certain type of person to be able to um, deal with that kind of previous relationship. But I think he probably considers that, again, people's pasts and experiences make them who they are or contribute to who they are and therefore that has contributed to who I am now. So it's quite a quite a hard place to be. Hopefully he'll be glad that he's met me, but equally I don't think he'd ever say that he was glad that my previous relationship didn't work out. So that can't be easy. I don't want to add too much to that story because it is a very difficult and emotional one, but there is one thing Felicity says at some point. When she talks about how she dealt with the pain, it comes from feeling the loss every second of every day, then every minute, then every hour, until you realize you can function again. Well, I can tell you it's not an easy thing to admit because of that loyalty we were talking about earlier. This is a fantastic story of resilience and I am certain it echoed in each and every one of you. It certainly did in me. A bit of follow-up now about Felicity and where she's at the moment. She mentions her current boyfriend. His name is Rob. 
I think he encouraged her to tell that story. He was very supportive and also very proud. I think he had it all planned for a while, but only three weeks later, after this interview, guess who got engaged? Thanks for listening to the Breaking Point podcast. You can find us online on our Twitter and Facebook pages. And if you want to share your story, go to thebreakingpointpodcast.com.